Well, good evening. Uh, we've got a, a serious subject to look at tonight, um, but we're going to start off tonight with something uh, a little fun, hopefully. So, Alistair, if I can have your help with this one. Um, I'm old enough to remember when Have I Got News For You was funny. Anybody else in that generation? No. Well, we're going to do the odd one out round just to, just to get us started. So if we can have our, our four pictures. And the odd ones out are the driver of a Lamborghini, fan of the Chicago fo- uh, basketball team, uh, a Wall Street banker, and the children of Israel. What's the odd one out here? Lamborghini driver, fan of Chicago's basketball team, a Wall Street banker, and the children of Israel. Children of Israel, why is that? It's history. It's true history. Oh, so is Michael Jordan. (laughs) That's right, we've got three bulls and one calf. So the children of Israel worshipped a golden calf. Thousands of years later people have moved on to worshipping bulls. So you've got the raging bull of Lamborghini, and the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, and the bull market, which is a sign of things going really well on Wall Street. So we'll be looking tonight at people worshipping a lump of gold crafted into a calf. And we might think that they're really stupid for doing that. Um, and actually, we're right. It is foolish. But let's just remember some of the things that we're tempted by, some of the things that our society worships, cars, sports stars, uh, money, just as foolish and just as unsatisfying. So let's just give ourselves uh, a a bit of background as to where we are. Let's set the scene. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus and seeing how God has brought his people out of slavery and he's taking them to the promised land. God is showering blessings on them and in response they argue, complain and rebel. Three months after leaving Egypt, the people have got to Sinai, which is about there. And um, God calls Moses up to him and starts to give him this law. God, first of all, gives the Ten Commandments, this summary of how people are to relate to God and how people are to relate to each other. Uh, And then he starts to move on to give them detailed directions as to how they're to live together and how particularly they're to relate to him and worship him. So Moses has now been away with God for about 40 days. And while he's away, the people get restless. And they say to Aaron in uh, verse 1 of our chapter, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. We're going to look at this passage tonight under three headings. Crazy people in verses 1 to 10. Uh, Crazy priests in verses uh, 11 to 32. And finally, amazing God, uh, filling up the rest of chapter 32 and the start of chapter 33. Crazy people, crazy priests, amazing God. So these people, the people who are worshipping this golden calf, the people who are asking for this God to go before them, they've seen God do the most amazing things, uh, as have we. They've seen the Egyptians get struck with hailstones, gnats, locusts, and frogs. Uh, They've seen God bring them out of Egypt. They've seen God make a way for them through the Red Sea and then bring that water back over to drown the army that was chasing them. They've eaten miraculous bread, which they called, what is it? And they've drunk miraculous water. 
the gold that they give Aaron to melt down to make this calf, do you know where they got it from? These people were slaves. Where did they get it from? The Egyptians, that's right. God, as he'd brought them out of Egypt in this great deliverance, had caused the Egyptian people to be so scared of them that, he, that they gave them their gold, their ornaments, their jewellery as they left Egypt. God has blessed them, and that is typical of our God, isn't it? He doesn't just save, he saves and he blesses more because our God is so good. Just as an aside, do you notice what the people do with the blessing that God's given them? God gives them this extra blessing, this gold. They take that gold and they make it into an idol. And as an aside, that's so often what we can do as well, isn't it? God gives us the great blessing of eternal life through Jesus, our sins forgiven. And then he blesses us with all sorts of things on earth as well. He gives us warm homes to live in. He might give us a spouse. He might give us children. And what's our temptation so often? It's to turn our eyes not from God and the good God that loves us to the things that he's given us and make those the object of our worship rather than the God who's given us those things. These people are crazy people. They're foolish people who turn so quickly from God. And we point the finger at them quite rightly and we see the three fingers that are pointing back at us because we know that we can so often be like that as well. God had blessed these people with ten commandments, ten rules for how to live. Do you notice how they break them one, one at a time in order? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And they say, make us a god or gods. God says, you shall not make yourselves an idol. And they say, let's have an idol. God says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And what do they do? They call this whole time of uh, festival a festival to the Lord. It's like God's given them the commandments and they just want to break it in order. Now the question we ask is, why? Why, when God has been so good to them, do they behave like this? Why do they so quickly turn their back on God and so quickly start breaking his rules? Well, I think there's two, two things that I can see here, that, two reasons why I think this might be the case. The first is that the true God is holy. Mount Sinai that we looked at a few weeks ago and that whole um, barrier that was put between man and God was there to tell the people very clearly, this God is holy. You cannot come close to this God. As Moses came down the mountain with these uh, commandments, again, it's saying to the people, there is a standard that you have to live by. There is a way that God expects you to live. It's a good standard, but it's also difficult, isn't it? It goes against our fallen human natures. Not to lie, not to steal, not to want things that belong to other people. So I think one of the reasons that these people wanted a different God, a new God, was that the God, the real God, just seems so difficult, so testing, so holy. He seems distant as well, doesn't he? We get a, a taste of that in them saying, as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Well, they do know what's happened to him. He's up on the mountain and Aaron knows because he's been up there. But, that God, but God can seem distant. And I think that can be the case for us as well, can't it? Our God can seem too difficult. His commandments too trying. I mean, really? Not covet? Really? Always tell the truth? It can seem so difficult. And our God can seem distant as well, can't he? You know, we don't have a picture. We don't have a statue. We don't have anything tangible. We have a God who's spirit. And that can be difficult for us. And we prefer nice warm feelings and, 
and something that we can see and something that we can look up to. So I think for those people, and we can understand it as well, I think that the distance of God and his holiness were reasons why they would rather a tame God. A God, as one of the commentators that I read said, a God they could dance around. A God who could just be there in the middle of what they were doing, that they could just have their, make up their worship, do their thing, and he would be fine with whatever they were doing because he didn't really put any demands on them. And I think we can be tempted sometimes to want a God like that as well. A God who doesn't make too many demands of us. A God who gives us nice warm feelings. We want a, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me sort of God, but not a I know what it is to be in need sort of God. I think that can be a temptation for us as well. But we need to remember, these people were foolish. These were crazy people. And if we're ever tempted to want a, a sort of dumbed-down God, a God who doesn't make so many demands of us, then, then we are foolish as well. Because the true God is glorious. Exodus teaches us that. Have you, if, you've, if you've been through this Exodus with us, you must have picked that up. The true God is glorious. The true God is good. The true God is powerful. And the true God has got great purposes for his people. His great purpose for these people was to take them from slavery to the promised land. God's God purpose, good purpose for us is to take us from the slavery of sin to the promise of what he's giving us. Uh, life with him now, eternal life knowing him now, and then a freedom from sin and a freedom from death and a freedom from all the things uh, that, that bring us down in this world and a presence with him for all eternity. God was blessing those people. God is blessing us. But this is the true God, and we must stick to the true God. So never be tempted by a dumbed-down God, by a God who doesn't make demands on you, a God who's, who's, who's too easy. Our God isn't easy. Our God isn't easy to live with, but our God is good, and our God is powerful. So these people were crazy people. What about their priests? God had given them priests, people to um, go between man and God, people who were to teach them what God was like, people who were to speak to God on their behalf. Um, just before uh, this incident, God is giving Moses very detailed instructions as to the priests, what they're to do, uh, and how they are to lead the people in worshipping God. And Aaron is to be the leading priest, the chief priest. Well, how's Aaron doing as a priest in our, in our passage? What did, what did you make of him? Were you impressed with him? Was he, was he the man that you thought would set Israel off on just on the right track to, to worship God in the promised land? Did he seem like the kind of priest you'd want? No, I don't think so. I think I, I, Aaron is hopeless, isn't he? Absolutely hopeless, if we're honest. You know, he, he doesn't resist the people at all when they come to him. It's like he's sitting there waiting for somebody to tick him off so that he can go and make the kind of God that he wants did you notice the difference between how he described to Moses how this golden calf came into being and how the narrator tells us it happened? Did you notice it? Chris brought it out nicely in the reading. Um, Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? That's verse 21. And Aaron says, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. And then he says, the people gave me their gold, verse 24, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Wow. Just, just came out. It's actually quite sinister, because burning bush, God speaks through fire, 
the real God speaks through fire, it's almost as if he's saying that the real God gave them this calf. So it's, it's beyond, it's, it's wicked, it's beyond foolish. It's actually quite sinister what he's saying there. The reality, of course, is in verse 4. Uh, he took what they'd handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of calf, fashioning it with a tool. So he'd very carefully made the calf and then he led the people into this festival. So Aaron is a pretty hopeless priest. But we've got another priest here, somebody else who stands between man and God, uh, and that's, that's Moses. And Moses, he's not hopeless at all. Moses, really, he's a hero in these verses. And Moses is the one who God tells what the people are doing. And Moses prays for the people. And God makes Moses this offer in verse 10. Leave me alone so my anger may burn against them, that's the people, and I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. See the offer that God makes to Moses? Let's get rid of these people. Let's give up on them. They are hopeless. And I'll make you, Moses, into a great people. But Moses doesn't go for that at all. Moses loves the people. And Moses loves God in the honor of God's name far too much to want to uh, take that honor onto himself. Moses comes down and he acts decisively. Did you notice what he did with the golden calf? Now, I've heard of drinking liquid gold, but this is, this is too much, isn't it? I don't know what it tastes like, gold. I don't imagine it's very nice on the way in or the way out again. After that, things take quite a dark turn as Moses calls the Levites together to go through the camp and strike down the people, no doubt the people that have been involved in these things. Moses takes action as God's priest and God's representative to deal with sin and rebellion. I don't know how you feel uh, when you read that sort of thing. Does that shock you? Death, just for wrong worship? It depends how you see things, really, doesn't it? If you see things from God's point of view, I'd suggest that you can quite easily see why God, the King, the Lord of heaven, when he's given away to be worshipped, expects that to be followed and can't tolerate rebellion. Moses certainly understands that and he understands a lot about God I think verses 30 through to 34 very interesting in this in terms of Moses' understanding of God can you just make sure you've got that in front of you Um, Moses said to the people you've committed a great sin but now I'll go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin Moses went back up to the Lord and said oh what a great sin these people have committed they've made themselves gods of gold But now please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. Now, um, this is where God's people start um, relating to God in terms of sin, atonement, blood. This whole sort of idea is starting to come in. As soon as the law is brought in, this idea is brought in as well. And these, these themes run, of course, through the whole Bible. Um, But Moses has understood this about God. He's understood that God is angered by the people's behavior. And he's understood that somebody needs to make atonement for sin. Atonement is um, a sacrifice to make right for sin. He understands that. And he goes up to the Lord because he thinks perhaps he can make atonement for sin. I think Moses is a hero. He's understood God. But I'm going to suggest that perhaps he goes too far here and overstretches himself. Because Moses understands that a priest needs to go up. He understands that somebody needs to make atonement, to make right for sin. 
He thinks, perhaps I can do it. And you notice his prayer. Look at verse 32. He asks God, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. The book that you've written is a a common theme through the Bible of a picture of people being um, saved, being right with God, that God's got a book of those people that are right with him. So what's Moses saying to God here? He's saying, God, please save these people. And if you won't save these people, then I'm willing to be judged, to be damned, to be thrown out of your book. I'm putting my salvation on the line for these people and my rightness with you on the line for these people. See what Moses is doing here? Who's he trying to be? What's he trying to do? I think Moses is a hero, but I think he's going too far here because what he's trying to be here is their saviour. I think he's trying to put himself in the place of their saviour. Not in any bad way, but just because he can see that this is what's needed. But that's not Moses' job. That's not Moses' role. Somebody will go up a mountain to God. Somebody will make atonement for the people's sin. Somebody will be blotted out of God's sight. Somebody will take on himself the judgment for the people's sin for the sin of all who would trust in him. That somebody's not Moses. And these priests, both of them, point us to what we've been looking at Sunday mornings, the need for the great high priest. From the start of the priesthood, it's never enough. What it's doing is pointing people forward to the need for somebody who's going to come. Somebody who can be that priest, the one who goes between man and God, but somebody who can do so much more than Moses can do. Somebody who can make atonement, Somebody who can put himself on the line. Somebody who can take on himself God's judgment. But that somebody has to be a man, has to be a person to identify with people. But he has to be God as well. Because he has to be infinite to take on himself the the depths of rebellion. I mean, the wickedness of what the people do here is immense. And the wickedness of what's gone on year by year from the creation of the world through to now of people not loving God, not giving God the glory, not recognizing his goodness. It's intense. And God, and this this is intense. Moses knows that a savior is needed, but it's not Moses, is it? That savior is going to come a lot later. And that savior is Jesus. And that brings us on to our final point, amazing God. Our God is amazing in the way that he interacts here. He's amazing throughout the book of Exodus. Here, the people, what do they do? As soon as he gives them the law, they start rebelling against him. He's given them so much goodness. He's given them this gold, and they just use it to make an idol with. But God relents. He relents from his judgment. And our God is amazing. That great high priest that God supplied, that God provided, that one who went up the mountain, we know that's God's son. What did God give? He gave person after person after person to warn the people, turn them from their sin. And when finally, person after person had been rejected and refused, what does God do? What does God do to save his people? He gives his only son. Our God is amazing. Our God determines to bless Israel, and our God determines to bless us. And one of the great questions that runs through the Bible, that runs through religion generally actually, is how can God be so good and kind to people And yet, how can God have mercy on sin? How can a God of holiness have to do with unholy people? That's a great problem. 
that runs through the Bible. How, and you, if you look at this passage without knowing the rest of the Bible story, you might say, well, how is God forgiving these people? Why is he not wiping them out? How is it that in verse, chapter 33, verse 3, God can say to these people, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey? How can God still do that? And the answer again brings us back to Jesus, the one who takes these people's sin, the one who takes our sin. How can God forgive me when God has been so good to me and yet time and time and time again I've decided that my peace, my hope and my joy would come from sports stars or cars or money or many other things. How can God be so good to me? How can God forgive me? How can God forgive you? And it does become very personal, doesn't it? This God who is holy, this God who seems distant but who sees everything we do. It's very personal for each one of us, isn't it? Because none of us have loved God with all our heart, soul and mind, loved our neighbour as ourselves, as God asks, calls us to. None of us has lived that kind of life. And yet God determines to bless, bless us and give us eternal life. How does he do that? It's through Jesus, that Jesus who goes up to that hill who takes on himself the punishment for our sin, that Jesus who offers us forgiveness for sin. God is good. God is amazing. And where are you at tonight? Where are you at tonight? Are you somebody who has never rebelled against God, always kept his commandments? If you are, can you come and see me later? Because I'd like to ask you a few questions. Or maybe you're somebody who recognizes no, I have rebelled against God. Well, if that is the case, then Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who can save us. And Jesus is the one who saves rebellious people and brings them to peace with God. So whether this is your first time of hearing this and you think, what's this all about? Can I really know God? Can I be right with him? Whether you've heard this many times that you've never come right with him or whether you have been come right with him you've asked for forgiveness you've you know God and yet you know in your heart that this week or this month that you haven't entirely given your heart and soul to him you know that you've taken the good things God has given you and that you've worshipped them instead of worshipping God whatever camp you find yourself in come to Jesus come to Jesus is the answer because Jesus offers us forgiveness of sin we are rebels, each one of us. And we'll come now to this table. And this table is a very simple reenactment. There'll be no dancing around this table. There'll be no wildness. It's a very simple reenactment. Uh, a picture for us, sorry, a picture of what God has done for us through Jesus. God has given us his son, his body, and his blood to make us right with him. So that whatever the degree of our rebellion, whatever our hopelessness would have been without him, we can come now and say thank you to him what he's done for us so where are you tonight are you a rebel or are you on his side whichever side you're on let's come to the table now if you've never come to this table before if you know that you're not right with God that you've not made peace with God then you are at risk and you don't have this hope and you're not on the way to the land that God wants to take his people to so now is a good time not to take the communion but a good time to take the stock and think through where you are in relation to this good, good God. And if you do know God, this is a time to say thank you to him for his goodness, to recognize his mercy overflowing to you and worship him and say thank you again.
Let's pray and then we'll come to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you are a God who uh, makes a way for guilty sinners to be made right with you. We thank you that we can come now and reflect on that and on your goodness. Amen.